0: All right, we are back. I'm not sure we have a theme for this segment, so let's call it a roundup from the miscellaneous file. Items don't come more miscellaneous than this one. Apparently, Italian researchers are contemplating digging up the remains of the woman believed to have been the model for Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. The masterpiece is known in Italy as La Gioconda because many scholars believe it is a portrait of Lisa Gerardino, wife of the silk merchant Francesco del Giocondo. Recently discovered documents indicate that Gherladini was buried in 1542 under the floor of the convent of St. Ursula in Florence. Here's the part I don't get. Art historians hope that once her bones are found, computer modeling can recreate her face. If the likeness is poor, that could lend credence to a rival theory that the Mona Lisa is actually a self-portrait by the artist. Okay, researchers in Italy, get a life! You guys apparently have been watching far too much TV. Speaking of TV, we we enjoyed the Mythbusters segment uh, a couple weeks back where Adam Savage and Janie Heinemann tested they could go unrecognized in realistic Mission Impossible-style masks. Their conclusion was it was plausible if the person was distracted. I'll never forget my roommate when I was a student at Davis, Gary Comstock, talking to his dad about the Mission Impossible show, and he said, man, the makeup job they do on Martin Landau is incredible. To which Gary had to say, dad, they hire another actor to play that role. He's not wearing a mask. By the way, Italian researchers, computer modeling is not that good. Here's a miscellaneous item we like. Many states in the Union uh, do well through the federal government. They get more tax dollars back than they pay in. Stand to reason that, you know, the richer states are going to pay more in than the poorer states. What's curious to see, which states are doing the best? Turns out the top 10 are Mississippi, West Virginia, New Mexico, Hawaii, Alaska, Alabama, South Carolina, Montana, Maine, and Kentucky. I thought it curious that only three of those 10 that aren't solidly red states are New Mexico, Hawaii, and Maine. And as for these former Confederate states and their issues of states' rights, I guess those states are exercising the right not to turn down federal money. Here's a medical item of some interest to this correspondent. Apparently there's a pharmaceutical war going on in the area of treatment of erectile dysfunction. Apparently Viagra is going to go generic in the not-too-distant future, and and the Pfizer Corporation has recently started selling a chewable form of Viagra in Mexico. It's called Viagra Jet, Pfizer says it may also market it to other nations in the developing world, if not the United States. And no, we don't know why Mexico is the test country and why it wouldn't be marketed here in the U.S. Its competitor, Levitra, which is a fairly comparable drug in its effect to Viagra, is now sold as a dissolvable tablet in nine European countries and is expected to come to U.S. pharmacies as soon as next month under the the new name of Staxon. This new form of the drug, Fizzles and Dissolves in Seconds, is marketed in a pocket-sized midnight black box for men who prefer to take it discreetly and without water. The third drug in the horse race is Cialis. It's now eight years old. It's starting to race ahead of the other two because of uh, two ideas that have proved popular, that you can have an everyday pill, once a day dose, and the fact that it has a longer half-life, and therefore it's sort of a, uh, a pill that sticks around up to 36 hours and sort of being labeled a weekender. It's expected by the end of this year, Cialis will be the top-selling drug in this category, passing Viagra. A great article about this in the New York Times by Duff Wilson notes that the market for drugs to correct erectile dysfunction has passed $5 billion a year from sales to tens of millions of men. Here in the U.S., Pfizer's battling to keep low-priced generic competition off the shelves for the next year or so, when the drug's patent expires, and of course, a generic pill would cost only a fraction of the 10 to $20 that, uh, that the blue pill currently costs. The Bayer Corporation is introducing this dissolvable form of Levitra in, uh, in Europe. It went on sale there last month. Bayer's brand manager said it's pocket-friendly, discreet, and gives the product a playful edge over its competitors. This may all turn out to be good news for men with erectile dysfunction because your uh, your medication costs may be going down. We do note that the article by Duff Wilson points out that Patrick Ford, a former FBI agent, leads Pfizer's security operations in the Americas. Notes that Viagra is the most counterfeited product in the world. Ford's agents pose as buyers, they collect evidence, and they bring fraud cases to prosecutors. He says fake Viagra may be unsafe. Here's the part I don't understand. Apparently, Pfizer has two patents out on Viagra. The one for its chemical is expiring in 2012, and the other for its use against quote impotence unquote expires in 2019. And not being a patent attorney, I'm not sure what that means. But I would, certainly would note that given the rate of uh, counterfeiting that goes on with the Viagra and other drugs in this class. Uh, you may want to think about trying to order it from some overseas pharmacy on the internet. The chances of you getting a bogus product, uh, well, it's got to be pretty high. We'll probably return to that topic at some point in the future. But in the meantime, a new study, according to the Washington Post, is raising questions about the safety of calcium, which many women are taking to protect their bones. Apparently 16,000 women who participated in the landmark Women's Health Initiative study found that those who started taking calcium as part of the study were at somewhat increased risks for heart attacks and strokes. This federally funded study is the same one that stunned doctors and women uh, uh, back in 2002 when it determined that the risks of taking hormones for menopause outweighed the benefits. Anyway, a new study in a British medical journal found that women who were not taking calcium when this, this study started but began taking it when they got into the research project were at 13% 13% and 22% increased risks for heart attacks and strokes respectively. They speculate that there may be something about suddenly starting calcium that boosts the risk of perhaps by causing calcification or hardening of the hardening of the arteries. This is when we'd have to say you should consult your physician, although I can pretty much guarantee he's not going to quite know what to do with this data either. Certainly uh, calcium supplementation is believed to help bones, along with some other medications that are out there, and and thin thin bones caused by osteoporosis can be a major problem in women that are postmenopausal. So like a lot of things in medicine, there's a bit of a trade-off here. One thing you can always do is get more exercise. The pounding effect on the bone seems to strengthen bone and cause more bone to be deposited. So uh, as usual, exercise is kind of a a win-win. Let to give an attaboy to the Sacramento News and Review magazine for its article by David K. Johnston about taxation a couple of weeks back. Noted the paper, the author is a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote this story specifically for the Sacramento News and Review and, and other weeklies across the country as part of a group project sponsored by the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. David K. Johnson is the author of Perfectly Legal and Free Lunch, and we've spoken to him on this program. He's been called the de facto chief tax enforcement officer in the U.S. because of his New York Times reporting that shut down many tax dodges and schemes. Two of them were valued by Congress at $260 billion. That's with a B. And by God, we need to bring him back on this show. Of course, this correspondent was a little bit less impressed by the recent editorial in the SNNR by Ed Smeloff. I should say anti-nuclear fanatic Ed Smeloff. There's been one instance in the history of the United States and perhaps the world where a nuclear power plant was decommissioned through the voters, and that was uh, right here in Sacramento, the Rancho Seco power plant, thanks to the efforts of Mr. Smeloff. In this piece, we're, of course... in, in. In this piece, where he appears to be running around with his hair on fire in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear accident, to quote from the piece, the nuclear industry and governments are caring for spent nuclear fuel that remains dangerous for living beings for 100,000 years or longer. Unused nuclear fuel is made up of uranium mixed with low concentrations of the radioactive isotope of uranium, U-235, encased in hardened zirconium tubes. Well, yes, it's true, nuclear waste can remain dangerous for a long time as opposed to say chemical poisons which remain dangerous forever. And I would refer this uh, nuclear expert to his textbooks to look up which of the which of the isotopes of uranium are radioactive because they in fact all are. I would refer you uh, instead of this article to the piece uh, on in the in the week magazine titled Briefing: Radioactive Fuel Rods, The Silent Threat. A lot of folks seem to conveniently forget that you know, other alternative energies do have costs with them. If you're going to do a hydroelectric plant here in California, chances are you're going to have to flood a stream or a river valley. And while nuclear power certainly has uh, its downside, it currently produces 20% of the energy in the United States. And you have to ask, how would we produce that energy now if we didn't use nuclear power? And I'll tell you right now, the answer is not going to come from wind sun, or water. It's certainly not going to come from geothermal or the tides or strapping a crankshaft to those birds that continually dip over and take a drink of water and then straighten up again. An editorial piece in New Scientist magazine about the fallout from Fukushima. The magazine pointed out that it's important to remember that Fukushima is not typical of reactor sites around the world. It was shaken by a megaquake that was exceptional even for Japan. In less seismically active regions, nuclear plants will not face the same design challenges. Adding that though the crisis at Fukushima is not over, it is almost certain that the loss of life and destruction caused directly by the earthquake and tsunami will dwarf any harm from the damaged reactors. They go on to note that while the fallout from the likes of Chernobyl is not a pretty sight, it pales in insignificance compared with the devastation earthquakes and hurricanes inflict. They note that's something worth bearing in mind as we face the fact that rising global temperatures will amplify nature's ability to cause havoc. And while it's relatively simple to detect radioactive material down to the last atom and model the ways in which it can spread and decay, we still can't accurately predict the impact of carbon emissions on the global climate in the coming century. They concluded by noting that against this background, we cannot ignore the contribution to curbing carbon emissions that nuclear power offers in the short term. we also refer you to the same magazine for a piece they did in the March 26th issue about the fact that it is time for a new generation of nuclear power plants. Magazine noted that the vast majority of today's reactors evolved from early military designs while others were based on the one that provided a compact power source for Hyman Rickover's U.S. Navy. We need to bring someone on that's from the U.S. Navy to talk about how it is the Navy manages to uh, sail around the world and, uh, on aircraft carriers and submarines with using nuclear power and, and seem, to, seem to manage pretty well. In that same issue, the magazine pointed out, uh, as they'd argued before, that we have more to fear from climate change than nuclear power we don't want to downplay the, the potential impact that uh, nuclear waste can have on the environment. Uh, throughout the U.S.'s history, 99% of the nuclear waste produced in this country came from the, produ- from the production of nuclear weapons, not from power plants. And as you can imagine, with a rather cavalier attitude about how there's, you know, no price that's too high to pay for national security, that uh, some corners were cut. We'll, we'll talk about that in the future. Meanwhile, down in Antarctica, there's apparently an invasion of crabs going on on the seafloor, which they're attributing to some warming of the local waters. Of course, warming is a relative term. Down in Antarctica, the temperatures hover around zero degrees centigrade and can get down to negative two in the salty water. For this reason, uh, animals on the Antarctic continental shelf have been relatively free from the attentions of predators like crabs and sharks, which cannot apparently cope with the cold so well. As a result, the animals that evolved there are lightly armored with thin shells. Well, apparently now uh, temperatures have warmed a bit, and crabs are being seen on surveys of the ocean floor, crawling all over the place. Apparently the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution towed a submersible called Seabed along a 30-nautical-mile transection of Marguerite Bay off the west coast of the Antarctic Peninsula and found that uh, there were crabs everywhere. And they were turning up in shallower water than, than they'd ever been seen before. Of course, there's <laughs> maybe many explanations for this, but uh, when you see strange things happening in ecosystems around the world, you just have to you have to get a little nervous. All right, let's close that with some really miscellaneous items. Uh, the Week magazine likes to have a thing called Best Books Chosen by blank, fill in the blank. And a few weeks ago, they had The book list chosen by Jesse Ventura. We've gone on record as saying that Jesse Ventura's book on uh, conspiracy theories was pretty good. We were trying to get him for this program, and the publicist told us we'd have to wait until the book came out in paperback. We are going to try again to get either him and or his uh, co-author, Dick Russell. Had a chance to meet Dick Russell many years ago. But his list kind of got me thinking. He listed three books that were of note, one called JFK and the Unspeakable by James W. Douglas. Read this book a few months ago. Wanted to bring Lisa Pease on the program to talk about it. Lisa spoke with Mr. Douglas at a public event along with Oliver Stone a few months ago. I don't think he got everything right in the book, but he got a lot of things that uh, that were correct, in my opinion, and it's uh, worth talking about. We'll hopefully do that later here in 2011. Another of his choices was The Secret Team by L. Fletcher Prouty. Said Ventura, let's see if I can do a Jesse Ventura impression, this book is tremendous because Colonel Prouty, who worked for special operations under JFK's Joint Chiefs of Staff, reveals who really runs our government. I would say that was a very interesting book, and I did have a chance to have lunch with L. Fletcher Proudy, the late L. Fletcher Prouty many years ago. And I got to say, he was one interesting guy to sit across from. He never got prosecuted for revealing any state secrets because he always said, let me give you a hypothetical. Here's how something would work if you were going to, say, do an operation in South America. I've seen him criticized over the years by people including professors here at UC Davis, but uh, I, think he was, uh, I think he was mostly telling it like it is. And you know, so does Jesse Ventura. Third choice of his I liked was Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi. Said Ventura, this story of Charles Manson and the Manson Family Murders is the most widely read true crime book in history. I've read it seven times, and something new always pops out. If I get bored, I can always pick up Helter Skelter. It'll suck you in like a vacuum cleaner. I have to agree. It's one hell of a true crime book, and uh, we're pleased to be able to say that in this program, we brought you Vincent Bugliosi, what, three times, Mr. McMillan? And we're looking at number four. We're being currently shopped uh, by a publicist for his latest book on uh, an analysis of whether there's a God. I think that might be more of a, uh, a topic for Chris Thielen to cover on his show American Atheist, but we, we may take a stab at it. Well, let's see. That about does it for today's program. Our thanks to Mike O'Connell and Jason Arminio, two comedians with a future, I'm sure. Thanks to everyone who contributed to KDVS on our our annual pledge drive. We hope you will not forget us if you didn't contribute or you want to do a little extra. God bless you. You can do so at kdvs.fundraiser.org, and we hope you will. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We will see you next week at the same time. I knew that I would not I feel good I knew that I would not So good So good I got a year oh, I feel nice The sugar is I feel nice The sugar is